0: Yeah. It's July. It's going to be a big episode. I've got. I know. A we lot
1: should just get it into so, it. Yeah. It's going so, to be a real right. Berliner of an episode. <laughs> Welcome to the Trade Waiters.
2: Yeah. This is. We're going to be covering Berlin, volume one. And there will be a second episode that's going to call, cover volumes two and three. If you have the new collected hardcover or the collected ebook, we'll be covering the first chapter, which is the City of Stones chapter the second episode will be the uh, City of Smoke and City of Light chapters.
1: And before we start, oh, yeah. I just wanted to give a content wording for our listeners and for readers if they have not read this book yet. So this is a historical fiction about Berlin in the during the Weimar Republic in the lead up to World War II. So a lot of stuff tends to come along with that. And I want to make sure that Readers are prepared uh, if they choose this book, or if they're wondering whether they should choose this book, and especially whether they should choose to listen to this podcast at this time. Because we will be discussing a lot of the things that are the core of this book. So that includes Nazism, anti-Semitism, sexism, racism, homophobia, and there's also depictions of violence, including blood and death, nudity and sexual acts, including assault, drug and alcohol use. So if any of that is not, you know, what you're really keen to listen to at this moment, go and remain in a good space. Uh, (laughs) But I'm excited to talk about this. I think there is a lot to dig into in this book um, and we can get right to it.
2: I think particularly in 2019, I feel like uh, this book meant more to me now than it did when I read it 20 years ago, which is when it started. Wow. Uh, and we'll get into that when we talk about the uh, author. Yeah. But first, we need to talk about ourselves. Oh. So, <laughs> of course, priorities. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, which is, we got to do our character-building question. Have you ever been part of a political action? And I use the term political action because you could define that in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's just like you ran like some assistance for like an election campaign. You did some like door-knocking. Maybe you're in a protest or whatever. Whatever you define that as, have you ever been part of a political action? Uh, And if not, why not?
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, The answer is yes. When I was in high school, a bunch of kids who were in the band went and protested cuts to music funding in education in BC. And then between that and like two years ago, I didn't do much of anything. Uh, The last two years, though have been a little different so i've uh tried to go to a couple of protests sometimes like it's hard to get information sometimes about when you're supposed to be where so a couple of times i've tried to go get the protests and missed my chance other times i did actually manage to get there and participate Uh, and there was also after the um, attack at the mosque in quebec um was that a year ago i don't remember Time goes fast. But there was a, a vigil at a mosque in Abbotsford, and I lived in Abbotsford at the time, so I went and to hung out there for a wh- little bit. So I don't know how much I felt like I accomplished, but I feel like I accomplished more than I would have if I'd stayed home.
2: Right on.
1: Yeah. I would challenge listen, the listener to think whether abstention is its own political act, <laughs> right? You know, choosing not to attend is uh, a statement that mm-hmm. you are making. However... Uh, I have made more active statements in my past. Uh, Mm -hmm. Most recently, I tend to be more involved in environmental protests. So things like uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline and things like that turned out to a couple of those. And I'm interested in turning out to more. Uh, I also I try to be a little bit more direct, but I consider that political in terms of like, how can I help the people around me and how can I stand up in day-to-day life for the things that I believe in, whether that's uh, homophobia, sexism, racism. I try to do those kind of like micro acts wherever I can. And going back to my past, I guess I started to become, I guess, politically aware in high school after 9-11. So I was in grade 11 during 9-11 in the United States. So that was, a, that was my political awakening. Hmm. Uh, and my response to being in Pennsylvania after 9-11 was to start a fight to end racism club.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, politics are important, and I think they're becoming more important all the time. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Good answer. I liked oh, yeah. that you brought up uh, everyday unexpected actions just in conversation, too, because that's super important.
2: Yeah. 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 Um... I'm Jeff Ellis, uh, and I recently have not been going to as many political actions as I probably would like to. I was, when you bring up 9-11, I attended many anti-Iraq war, anti-Afghanistan war marches in downtown Vancouver, and I think I was like a little more like uh, active uh, at the time, and I unfortunately, and this is like kind of a cop-out, but I just think with my life being what it is, with the number of jobs and the number of schools that I'm going to. Every time I see a Facebook event for like a a march or a protest, I look at my calendar and it's like, I'm already double booked for something else. Um, Just kind of lame. But uh, I think that is maybe the, uh, what I try to do is I try to walk walk the talk. And so as for like environmental actions, I just have been actively trying to get closer to zero waste. Uh, I try to carry like reusable utensils and reusable straws with me and a reusable bag and uh, just, you know, I try to repost and retweet. I don't know what good that does, but that's what I, that's my (laughs) little form of political action. So yeah, I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at with things, Uh, but I have been part of protests um, and I definitely try to be informed about uh, who the best people are to vote for. And that's something I would encourage everyone, all our listeners right now is really look at who's available to vote for in the upcoming Canadian election and really ask yourself, is this person going to help us uh, meet our carbon targets uh, in the next 10 to 13 years?
1: <laughs> and make sure to register and be a voter.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, and you can join political parties too. It's pretty mm-hmm. easy to do that in
2: Canada, especially depending on which party you pick. I'm... a I, I wish I could say I'm a card-carrying member of the NDP. Because they don't but give They you cards. didn't give me a card. They took my <laughs> money. I am a member. I got nothing for it. <laughs> and I
1: have supported political – I have supported NDP candidates. So uh, I am a big supporter of Bowen Ma, Lonsdale uh, MLA. So there's lots of little things that everyday people can do for sure. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, the Trade Waiters is not a political podcast. We're not no, here no. to sway yeah. you one way or another. But yes. I guess our prevailing ideology should be clear. Yes, <laughs>
0: we are an explicitly anti-fascist podcast. Uh, How yes. about that? Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, none of the Trade Waiters are going to endorse the National Socialist Party <laughs> in Berlin uh, throughout this review. <laughs> Nor will they get a fair
0: hearing because they don't deserve one. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, okay. So Jason Lutz, uh, he was born December 7th, 1967. Um, He's an American comic book creator. Uh, His work is mainly historical fiction. He's best known for his series Berlin, which he worked on over 20 years. So I was, I think, maybe a teenager still when I read volume one. And uh, I was thrilled beyond belief that I could finally read the ending, which just came out, I think, I'm gonna, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it's about six months ago. And then the hardcover got released very recently. Um, And so I was really pleased that we could do the entire story. I didn't want to review part of it. I wanted to review it when it was finished. So I'm glad we can talk about it. Um, And he currently uh, teaches at the Center for Cartoon Studies. And before he did Berlin, he did a book called Jar of Fools with a 1993 Zirik
1: grant. Oh, wow. And
2: if you want a little bit of light reading to cleanse your palate after Berlin... (laughs) Jar of Fools is a charming story about magicians, and you kind of see a reflection of that in references to Harry Houdini in this work. So Berlin was originally published as Individual Issues. It was a series of 24 floppy magazines, which was since uh, reduced to 22. So he originally planned to do this in 24. He cut it down to 22. 24 issues? 24 issues. Okay. Yeah. So twenty four self contained or twenty four right. magazine chapters that okay. end up getting compiled into this work, and it covers the life of people living in Berlin from nineteen twenty eight to nineteen thirty three, which basically covers the decline of the Weimar Republic. So, I also made a list of main characters Thank because you. there's so many people that I thought it would be good to just kind of talk about the individual people because uh, essentially Berlin is an incredibly in-depth look at the lives of different people living in Berlin I see you guys pulling out your pen so yeah I'm uh, forgetful so here's our here's our list of characters because I, I straight up if I didn't have this list I'd be saying that guy yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. throughout this so I it. Um, Kurt Severing is a journalist and maybe at the beginning of the story a centrist in his politics and then he encounters Mart Muller who is left her small town. And is going to art school in Berlin. At art school, she encounters Anna, who's a classmate, going to school with her. And then there is Pola, who's a showgirl and life model at the college. And there's young David Schwartz, who is a obsessed with Harry Houdini. <laughs> and uh, he is selling uh, communist newspapers, uh, much to the chagrin of his father. Uh, there's also Pavel, who is a homeless man who's of Jewish descent, which becomes relevant later in the story. Sylvia Braun and her mother Gudrun, who are her mother is a communist sympathizer. Unfortunately, her father, Oscar Braun.
0: Oh, his name is uh, Oscar. I looked everywhere yeah, to try to yeah, find his first
2: all name. It's in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, and Oscar- then
1: there's a reference that Oscar is the name of. Someone else as well. So. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah.
2: So yeah, Oscar Braun. He is a unfortunately a National Socialist sympathizer. Um, this causes some friction in the marriage, as one can imagine. <laughs> yes. And his son Heinz, uh, is spends a lot of time with his dad and becomes very much indoctrinated in uh, German National Socialism. And then I didn't write down all the names of the Coco Kids, but they are an African American jazz band. That are kind of in a, like I would almost say, like a side plot to the main story. was... Well, we'll, they're we'll they're, get they're into kind
1: that, of all but side yeah. plots. But <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, and actually, I don't even think they show up until book two. So That's we're right. really not going to talk about they're them in only this episode. in book
0: two. So yeah. just uh, to interrupt you here for a second, <laughs> so this episode is going to be about volume one. Uh, And then the next episode will be Volumes 2 and 3.
2: Yeah, so I think, other than the Coco Kids, all these other characters I think show up in this volume. Okay. Um, But I thought I would just get all the characters out of the way now. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, so that's our cast of characters. Uh, I've got a few to Uh, add here because I
0: wrote a list as well.
2: And then, oh, sorry, uh, I also forgot about one addition uh, is uh, Lemke and Zucker, who are German police officers.
0: Okay, I missed them, but I also got... There's Richard, who is another classmate of Mart's, at the in the first chapter. Hmm. Which one? Uh, I forget. He was, was not he? as remem- memorable. Did he yeah. have
2: the dream sequence? That might have been him. Oh, yeah, I think that was okay. him. Okay.
0: Uh, then there was Immentoller, is a friend of Kurtz who has joined the communists, and there's Margaret, who is uh, Kurtz's oh, yeah. ex. There's also there's uh, Mart's landlord who is in the first chapter and anna's landlady is in i think she might be in this chapter i can't remember but she becomes more important in later chapters uh and there's also um kurt's boss who is carl von osiecki which we find out at the very end of all three volumes is i think the only real person
1: in yeah. all of this. Yeah. Well, no, that's not entirely true. There are cameos from other yeah. real people. That's true. Um, yeah. In the back of the ebook edition, I don't know whether this is true of the print editions, there is an index of characters and they indicate which ones are okay. uh, based on real characters. So people like Josephine Barker, obviously. And
2: yeah.
1: Sorry, Josephine like, Baker.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, and also Otto right. is the uh, main leader of the communists that we meet in the story.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of characters.
1: Yeah. Suffice yeah we're to say probably
2: it. even forgetting
0: some characters. <laughs> like, I just want to say, while we're on the topic of characters, it, as confusing as it is to have this many characters, I think Jason did a good job of drawing them differently enough that I didn't get too confused. Most of the time, I could tell who everybody was, mm-hmm. and I didn't lose track. I just couldn't remember their names all the time because it's a comic, and you just see their faces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I
1: think he also did a really good job of weaving the stories in and out. I think mm-hmm. he selected a really interesting mix to show a lot of the complexity of that time. Uh, I think without a cast this big, it would have fallen a little bit w- one perspective, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah. fewer characters, it wouldn't have been a story about the city. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So where to start? Um, How about first impressions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, well, yeah, I suggested this, so why don't you guys give me your initial impressions first?
0: Um, Okay, so uh, much like Jeff, I read the first two volumes uh, not quite as long ago as he did. I think I read them about 10 years ago, but even the space of time from reading them 10 years ago to reading them again in 2019, I interfaced with these books in a very different way. Whereas originally, I think I was reading them as just, oh, here's an interesting window on a historical setting that I'm glad I'll never have to worry about anything like this. And now here (laughs) we are in 2019, and I'm looking through them for advice. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) So what was your first impression, I guess? Oh, um, (laughs) yeah. So
0: I really, I love these books. They're great. Uh, Like rereading them, I I actually also was rediscovering how volume one was kind of influential on uh, my writing for A Mad Tea Party. Oh, okay. There were little bits and pieces where I like was reading them and oh, wait, I remember I did something with that exact trope as like I want to have that in my story as like something that happened 200 years in the future.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. So uh, I had not heard of this work until it was suggested by Jeff. Oh. So thank you for introducing me to it and uh, giving me the opportunity to read it. Uh, I also read all 500 pages within like two days, <laughs> which Ooh, that's that's got to be rough. Is faster than I recommend, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I guess like pushing aside the fact that it's like, well, I I got to get through this. Uh, I did find it quite engaging. So uh, I've read a lot about World War II. I've been exposed to a lot. I've visited mm. uh, World War II related sites. So I consider myself like. Fairly knowledgeable about the history and uh, fairly interested. That being said, longtime listeners of the Trade Raiders will know that among the group, I am the least interested in historical fiction <laughs> or uh, nonfiction. So I did have to like push a little bit to be like, okay, this is this is what it is. But I, again, I found it pretty easy to read and pretty engaging, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I was thinking about how to describe the art style because Mm. i know that it is part of a very clear group which i don't know the proper term for i'm going to say indie comics of the 90s but Mm. i would put finder there i would put castle waiting there Mm -hmm. the same kind of like realist style that's not quite north american comics but very close a lot of hatching, a lot of very heavy ink work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there a term for this umbrella of style?
0: I'm not sure. It's kind of like it seems a little bit clear line like European as well. Like it's more in that direction than in superhero direction for sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's also black and white. Mm. And there's a lot of those kind of like world building, like silent panels. There's a lot of like subject to subject Mm -hmm. transitions that are manga influenced, so you know, Japanese comics influenced. Um, yeah, um but uh yeah I would say I don't know, it is it is a very particular style. Yeah. Like it's nineties um, independent comics is
0: I can't think of Yeah a I can't think of that. a better okay. way to
2: say that because like yeah the the comparable kind of art styles I would think of would be Like maybe this is like maybe too stylized, but like almost like a little bit of like love and rockets. Yeah, Mm. yeah, I would put that in the same category. Adrian Adrian Tomine's like optic nerve, like just that very like realistic rendering and black and white and just like yeah, like not over stylizing things, keeping it very like clean, functional kind of depictions. Mm -hmm.
1: Does it come out of a school? Does it come out of like the Center for Cartoon Studies?
0: I'm not
2: sure.
1: Um, okay, I'm glad I, I feel better that I'm not the one, <laughs> no, uh, the only one who doesn't know this. So. I
2: would say it's not the center for cartoon studies because Linda Berry has also taught there, so there's definitely well, room for like very, very expressive, stylized work to exist in that in that institution.
1: Scott McCloud also has a style like this. Yeah. So if you look at Zot and you look at uh, what's his the sculptor? Uh huh. Is that it? Yeah. The yeah. The name of that more recent book? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that style is also in this mm. school or umbrella, if we want to call it huh. that. Mm. I don't know. Oh, now I think I describing it terms. as a school is
0: a good way to do it. Even if yeah. it's not the particular school that people happen to go to, I... it's still a school of mm. uh, stylistic school.
2: Yeah. 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 I I think that like in the interest of like making comics more highbrow and more artistic, I think we should figure out a name for the school and we should classify other styles into schools and this should become a a, a, part of regular comics discourse. Um, We don't have time for it in this episode, but like I am on board with coming up with a bunch of different schools of style to talk about for comics. Next time,
0: next time we do a book in this style, we'll have to
2: name it. Okay. Sounds sounds fair. This is related to our previous conversation about, uh band destiny and manga and yeah. comics mm. is we could just these need to be schools yeah. schools of style that, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. good
1: point uh but suffice it to say the art's great the art's gorgeous it's black and white it's got a lot of high detail realistic characters characters are distinct and well drawn and on the art side i think there is absolutely nothing you can complain about mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. no, and the in terms backgrounds of are
0: gorgeous too
1: and in terms of like paneling and comic flow and use of comic language in a particular way, I think mm. like,
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: fantastic, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Some of the some of the um yeah some of the like the 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 moments where there's like dream sequences or just people having like intense emotional reactions, like, um, it really made me reconsider my own work just because like it. Yeah, like, he, he does things with paneling that just, like, it expresses the emotion or it just it expresses something, like, you can't put into words uh, in such a beautiful way. So, yeah, I really was inspiring for, like, mm-hmm. paneling
1: Yeah. Uh, my and storytelling. F- my favorite thing that I saw Jason do, which I had not seen quite done this way before, uh, is what I'm going to call the crowd thought transition. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Okay, so like there's a a lot of instances where it will start with one character and that character is having a train of thought. And the thought balloon is also something that's been discussed a lot. A lot of people are saying like thought balloons are lazy and you shouldn't use them. But I think this is a particular brilliant use of it and a point in its favor. So you start with a character and they're having a train of thought and they pass by another person. Or they pass by a crowd of people and you see the trains of thoughts, like little vignettes into the trains of thoughts of all those different people. Mm. And then it chains down to the train of thought of another person and that person goes on and you follow them for a little while. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a transition style that I've never really seen before that I can note. And I think it really adds to, again, like the character of the city where Mm -hmm. you are dipping in in the preoccupations of all these different people that you never see again.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, like Waking Life, Ah. uh, the movie, where Hmm. it's just like you're kind of dipping into these little moments between people and then dipping out and you're going into where someone else is having another conversation or another thing's going on and it's like there's a bit of a, a through line of like there's a relationship between all the scenes, but they're not directly connected and it's like in this case it's like everyone's in the city of berlin but it's like yeah you'll you'll have like this intense conversation between two characters and then suddenly like someone walks by like oh my goodness i've got to get to the bakery on time <laughs> and then you kind of follow like that for a little bit you know yeah. and and i liked i liked some of just like the way that you would you would sort of follow there was moments here where you just follow a character for like two or three pages and and then they weren't really relevant to the rest of the story. And you didn't need to follow them for those three pages. But, like, Jason just felt like, no, no, we're going to kind of... We're going to go with this woman until she gets home to her husband and sits down on the chair. And then we're going to go back to our main cast, you know? And I, I really appreciated that. I mean, I I think this is what I would say is kind of the kind of storytelling I aspire for. Mm. Is I'm... My goals have always been to, like, convey really human moments, really realistic moments, things that feel, like, relatable. And I think that that's what I really found compelling in this work and why I recommended it beyond just the political uh, reasons. But I think that um, it just, like, this is such a wonderful kind of approach to showing, like, the makeup of the people that live in the city and um, looking at all these different aspects of life and looking at looking at the city of Berlin through the eyes of, like, a homeless man and then switching gears and looking through this, like, rich aristocrat in his mansion and then the person, like, struggling to go to work on the train. And, like, everyone feels authentic. Everyone feels, like, a really fully fleshed-out person. Like, yeah. any of the characters, even a character in the background, you could imagine that Jason could zoom in on that person and there would be a 24-page story to tell easily with any character right
1: yeah and i also really appreciate how much humanity is brought to every single depiction Mm -hmm. like one of the things that really stood out to me as i was reflecting on this work is that every single character we like just rattled off a list of like 30 uh but but, like every (laughs) single person has like a complex set of motives a complex backstory And also, like, positive and negative aspects Mm -hmm. about them. Like, there is no, like, white hat hero and, like, black hat villain with maybe a couple of exceptions. But (laughs) uh, everyone is very complex and treated with a lot of humanity, which I Mm -hmm. really appreciate. And it makes me a lot more interested in, in history. One of the reasons why I don't tend to like historical works is because I find them a bit detached. Mm-hmm. So when it brings the humanity in it like this, it, it makes me personally enjoy it a lot more. Yeah.
0: Now, um, oh, so as, as long as we're talking about favorite sequences, I want to bring up my favorite sequence. This is one of my favorite sequences in all of comics. Um, mm. So, like, first of all, throughout the book, Jason makes a very interesting choice where he's decided not to put swastikas anywhere in the comic. So we see... The Nazi brown shirts. We see them marching around. We see their uniforms. uh, We see their flags, but their flag has a big empty white space in the middle. And knowing enough about history, as the average person will, we know that that's a Nazi flag. So we don't really need that symbol there. And it feels like he's done this intentionally because that symbol immediately has connotations to it. Like you see that symbol and you know exactly what you're in for. Whereas if you take the symbol out and we're just looking at a bunch of people in uniforms, there's that sort of hesitation where you have to figure out who these people are and what they stand for, which I think, especially at this point in history, is like really useful. That's what you want. You wouldn't want to be able to not say, oh, they're Nazis, and that's it. We want to know why are they Nazis? How did they get in power? Like, How did we get here? So anyways, one of the first times we see them marching is it's page 203 in volume one. I think it is the first time we see them march they're like marching in response to the uh, communist march this is like a counter protest and we see them marching down the street and the the page has uh there's like five panels at the top of the page that kind of make a square in the middle there's a small square panel that has just the flag but without the swastika and then the four panels around it kind of form a swastika shape.
1: Oh, I didn't notice that. With oh, the, um, yeah.
0: the marchers in oh, the space. Wow. So it's oh, like interesting. the people themselves are the swastika. We don't need the swastika on the flag to understand this is troubling. This ah, is not good news. Interesting.
1: Oh, how wonderful.
2: I didn't there's notice There's a
0: parallel that. to that in Volume 3, which we can get to when we get there.
2: Yeah. Um... That's funny. I was I was going to talk about the same thing. Yeah, uh, which is that's that, not
0: spoil volume no, three yet.
2: No, no, no. But like, uh, I um, yeah, I, just to kind of re- re- reiterate or reinforce what you were saying. Like, some, I think that some of the humanity you talked about, Angela, is only possible because he doesn't add the swastikas. Because I feel like, especially like in the first volume, you really see Oscar and Gudrun's marriage basically fall apart and oscar takes his son to live in national socialist headquarters but there's moments where you can see that oscar is not a hundred percent sold on that he's in the best place with the best people and i think that if he had a swastika on his arm you would have a harder time sympathizing with his plight i think that because jason takes that symbol that powerful symbol out erases it at the beginning here um it allows you to kind of engage with the situation that oscar's in that some of the other national socialists are in that you know you know i don't agree with their perspective but like they have a perspective and i'm at least willing to read that perspective because it's presented in this way and i think if it if they had that powerful symbol i think it would I, my barriers would come up i would shut down a little more and i so i think that it was a really intelligent move on, and I think it was a very intentional move that Jason did in not depicting the swastika.
0: Yeah, there's a, a, a well-known saying that, I forget who originally said it, but when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in the red, white, and blue flag and covered in other American symbols. I can't remember the exact one. Wearing a red hat? Yeah, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not in the quote, but uh, the the point being that you can't, just while well, you can say that a swastika equals fascism. You can't just say a swastika equals, equals fascism because mm-hmm. then you'll be ignoring a whole lot of other fascist mm-hmm. ideologies. You have to be able to recognize the ideology without the symbols.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also interesting to hear the I guess the language of the time, as people are separating into these groups and defining themselves, because you have the socialists, the communists, the mm-hmm. national socialists, the national democrats. You know, like the democratic socialists. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. like a lot of confusion among those terms, and even the characters in the book at the time, they're like, oh, who can keep them all straight, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's only this one faction that you see. They they started as a fringe group, did they not? Like, yeah. they They were a fringe group that kind of snowballed into power, and only now can we spot them, and we're like, ah, oh, you fools. Like, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I think that's the thing that I found the most disturbing upon rereading this is how few Nazis there were. Well, no, no. Not, <laughs> like, I think what I found disturbing was that um, some of the situations of just like, you know, in like the first page of this book, Severing changes train cars and he makes a comment about like there's another Nazi with his armband sleeping on the train. And so mm-hmm. he com- comments to Marta like, Oh, at least he's asleep. He's going to be better company than the guy in the other train car I was in. And you're just thinking like, oh, man, like there's people with visible symbols that they wear to show their politics Mm -hmm. who you're going to get into arguments with. Like, I don't know. I just like it all felt very contemporary. Like I was just like, oh, wow. Like this is this feels like the atmosphere the the like um argument between different people over their political disputes even like the like some of the conversations with the national socialists where they're talking about like how they feel victimized they feel like germany was done wrong after world war one and there's no opportunities for them there's no money for them and
1: well, even, I think, outside the lens of the, the ones who are in the Nazi faction, you see that very plainly across the board mm-hmm. with people who, like, um, Gudrun, I think, is her name, right? Yeah. yeah. Gudrun is another really good example where she lost her job. You know, there is nowhere for her to turn to, and mm-hmm. she wound up in the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the underlying issues are common among all of them. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. everyone's struggling. Like, there's so much, so much of the... Uh, thoughts going through people's heads are about food mm-hmm. because, like, food is hard to come by sometimes and, like, there's a lot... There's a lot of going on with food because yeah. people don't have it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, like, what he conveys here really effectively is the idea that... Um, and this is... I was talking to my uh, girlfriend about this uh, yesterday because she's studied a lot of history and, you know, she was saying, oh, Weimar Republic, that was just a shit show. Like, Germany was totally... Bankrupt. They had no food. They had no money. There was nothing for anyone. People were scrambling just to get anything. And the communists were trying to seize power. And then the National Socialists were trying to seize power. And people just needed, they wanted to cling to something. And so unfortunately, a lot of them clung to the National Socialist Party in the end. But I think that Jason does a good job of setting up the the kind of dire straits that everybody's in. That like rejecting national socialism isn't leading you to like some really wonderful Mm. life right now (laughs) um maybe embracing communism isn't necessarily the right answer either
0: but Uh, i mean then the centrists just don't participate and they lose (laughs) their country anyways so right
2: yeah also worth a (laughs) good lesson worth noting um centrists (laughs) anyways um uh But yeah, I just think, uh, like, yeah, that depiction was really vivid. And it just, again, it it felt really relatable. Like, I think about all the conversations I have with so many friends and family about their financial struggles and the difficulties with the economy and with employment and my own feelings on finances. And I'm just like, wow, like, I, I don't think it's as bad as the Weimar Republic Berlin, but like you get a sense of like, oh, this is the atmosphere and it makes a little more sense why some people are jumping onto these extreme positions because they just feel like there's no one looking out for their best interest and suddenly this this demagogue is saying, I'm going to give you your job back. Well, okay, sure. Why yeah. not? I got nothing to lose.
1: I also was really uh, struck by how strongly people identified with the role that they did select so mm. like there was this really clear division between the fa- the the factions right and so like to the point where you could recognize them on the street right mm-hmm. and you could you were ending friendships and it was splitting families like those alliances were very real to people mm-hmm. um and it really struck me in when i think it was uh emmentaler who was admonishing Kurt, the writer, to say, like, you can't stay centrist. You have to pick a side. Like, the reason you're so depressed is because you're not being active, right? (laughs) You have to make progress. And apathy and passivity is not something that you can morally do in this context. Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. was a message that was reflected in a few different places, which was uh, really interesting.
0: Yeah, Mm. But there's at the same time, there weren't really any heroes in this story either. I think the, the communist side is given a little more of a sympathetic lens than the, the Nazis, which is not hard to do based on just the facts. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're not sugar-coated either, where they're also kind of a very strict ideology. And if you don't conform to the ideology, then that's going to have consequences. And they're like not doing very well financially either. They're all starving too. They have the advantage of being the ones who control various unions so like gujun at some point uh gets a job with the road workers union because she's moved in with the communists and so someone finds her a job so the the road workers are all communists
1: yeah and then they find her an apartment as well for yeah, the same yeah, means yeah.
0: but it's all sort of very insular where you've joined this group and that's how you're going to survive
1: yeah mm-hmm. later on we won't uh dip too far into the other books but there is comments that it's like hey you're living on a communist block you can't be seen you know, reading papers of the National Socialist Party in this mm-hmm. block, or right. we're going to kick you out. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah And I, I mean, I, yeah, I just liked the the complexities. I think one of the other characters that stood out to me in this volume was Lemke, the police officer, hmm. which like he's not a good man. He's like definitely a a, a violent, uh, abusive police officer, um, but he's also like a World War One veteran, and he calls out like. He, cops for being anti-semitic yeah yeah and it's like he's he just like i think at a certain point he's just kind of like look i just want order i just don't want these either i don't care if you're communist or you're national socialist i just don't want either of you in the streets making trouble just like everyone should just go home and go to bed because i'm tired of dealing with this <laughs> essentially it's kind of like his attitude for a while and and then eventually he just leaves which i kind of appreciated that uh-huh. he just hits a point where he's like I'm done. Like, yeah, I, I got to get can't. out now. This
0: is not going to get yeah. better.
2: I don't yeah. want to be a police officer and have the communists <laughs> or the national socialists telling me who I'm supposed to be beating up. So I'm just I'm going to quit. I'm done. You know, and I appreciated mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I feel like that was almost his redemption arc was just being like, <laughs> I'm done with being a cop. You know.
1: Yeah. And you bring in a, a really interesting point tangentially, which is kind of like the memory of World War One which I think is another major factor. Mm. Uh, one of the points that made me a little bit confused briefly was when we jumped back in time to 1918. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so book one starts in 1928. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at a point it jumps back and dips in on Kurt and Margaret during 1918, which is right after the end of World War I and mm-hmm. the foundations of the Weimar Republic. And there is uh, a conflict over the Reichstag. And it's just a very different, tumultuous time. And, like, the memory of World War I and what people lost, like, um, March lost a brother, you know, like, a number of people lost relatives in that war. You see veterans of World War I around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting aspect that's woven through here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, uh, maybe just to, like, take a break from the <laughs> the politics for a second... I actually appreciated Martha's art school journey. Oh, yeah, that
0: was interesting. And
2: it's just like, you've got this like intense, like, we're in the Weimar, fall of the Weimar Republic in Berlin, and there's National Socialists and there's Communists, and then you take a little break, and there's this young woman who left a small town to go to art school in Berlin, and she's just like...
1: How so can I be an great.
2: artist? Yeah. What should I be doing? I don't even know, <laughs> yeah, she's trying to figure
0: out her style. She's trying to figure out what to do with art
1: or her life in general, yeah, yeah,
0: and all her friends are all talking about different schools of art and like where they see themselves fitting in.
1: It was a really interesting group to examine Berlin through because I mean it was an art center. Mm-hmm. uh, it was a cultural center, oh, yeah, and for sure. so these art students who are very, very involved in the the cultural trends of the time and the comings and goings of Uh uh, art was it was a fun little lens to dip through for sure yeah
2: Yeah, like i mean i don't know i just like some of the scenes of like just like there's like them doing life drawing and Mm. like the teacher like criticizing their anatomy and like one of the students being super stressed out like i was like yeah i've been there man like (laughs) i've been in that life drawing room i've been exactly in that headspace like and, and so I don't I just, think
1: our teachers are as strict as these
2: No, me. my art teacher was nicer than this art teacher, but just like, you know... <laughs> but I, it does
0: show, I think, a generational divide too, where like the teacher is from an older school of art where everything has got to be super realistic. He's like neoclassical or something. I'm not sure. I forget all yeah. the different schools that were around at the time. But then his students are like, no, we're, we're more sort of like modernist, like abstract expressionist. We want to do something different than what like detailed anatomy that's always perfect. <laughs> yeah whereas now it's kind of the opposite your art teachers are going to tell you no no just put paint on a canvas that's fine you don't need to know how to draw the figure like, but i
2: want to know how to do that <laughs> not in my class not in my life drawing class no. um but no i just i just like I, I felt like at the end of it end of book one like that all the art school stuff was actually kind of a breath of fresh air um to a lot of the heavier politics and i just because i have gone to art school and i've kind of been, especially in the last couple of years, I've been on my own kind of artist journey. Um, I really related to that whole kind of finding your voice, finding yourself, finding how you fit in with art. Um, And I enjoyed that Jason was able to weave that into this really complicated political narrative that deals with like the rise of national socialism.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I was, it was also interesting to see sort of a little window on queer culture in why am republic? Because like that was a thing that was like new and exciting and a, it was sort of a revolution going on at the time.
1: Yeah. No, I'm really uh, do we want to talk about it now or sure. more during book two?
0: Well, we can talk uh, a little bit about it now. Think, there's think, more that happens in later books.
1: yeah, like the, you get an introduction in book one, so I think it's worth okay. talking about. So let's let's talk in an introductory capacity then. Like I'm really, really grateful for the lens that we get into the queer community, and there's a few different axes through which we get into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because this is something that I feel is often forgotten about Berlin during this area, is that it was actually a queer center. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I looked up some facts and statistics about what Germany was like during that time, and there's a great article in the Paris Review called A Lost Piece of Trans History, And there's a quote that I pulled out from there, and it was, Berlin was the undisputed queer capital of Europe. By Hmm. 1900, over 50,000 gay men and lesbians lived there. Uh, people were openly transgender, you know, which were ascribing modern terminology to it, but they lived openly as the opposite gender from their uh, birth assignment. They had gender assignment surgeries. There was even a, what was called a transvestite pass, which people could bring with them so that they wouldn't get hassled by the police. Hmm. There oh, wow. were a lot of gay clubs and gay culture. There were gay and queer culture magazines and publications and books and an academy dedicated to studying it. Yeah, so, I've,
0: I've heard of this academy. Now, I've, you've done your research more recently than I have, but wasn't that academy when the famous situation where the Nazis were out burning books in the street, that was books from this academy?
1: Correct. So mm. if you remember the Nazi book burnings, which is Bebelplatz, the start of of Bebelplatz was people taking 12,000 books, journals, references, photos, periodicals, 12,000 of them from Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Science, and they were burned and destroyed, completely erasing this historical record of what Berlin was like at that time. And that's what Nazism was trying to do and to a large part succeeded. It took a really long time for us to reestablish, like, no, this was already, like, very big deal in uh, 1920s Germany. Uh, so if you want to look up more about that, a good thing to Google is the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft. John, would you be willing to... <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you can that... email me the spelling of that, yes. I can put a link.
1: Yeah, yeah, but there is a lot of really fascinating history about that time that I think is was deliberately swept away, mm-hmm. but was mm-hmm. truth and did exist.
2: Yeah, I think that's an aspect that I think... Um... It was good that it, it was included in this work. Yeah. Um, and I think... I guess, like, mainly it's... We, we sort of... Our, our main conduit is the character of Anna. hmm
0: Well, let's have a little sort of run-through of the plot, at least that yeah. part of the plot. So when Margaret comes to Berlin, she, like, makes friends at the uh, Academy and including becoming friends with Anna. And then she starts up a relationship with uh, Kurt uh, and so they're together for a while and when she tells Anna about this relationship Anna suddenly gets very standoffish and like sort of pulls away from her uh, and then later Margaret leaves Kurt and uh, gets in a relationship with Anna
2: No I think that is book two isn't if it? I is it correctly.
1: I think so. I think the relationship is mostly in book two, but oh, I can not remember Oh, whoops. Sorry. The exact. No, no,
2: Spoilers. Sorry. No, but that's, yeah. So it, <laughs> it is in this. Uh, I don't think it was immediate. Like, at least I, I when I read this, it wasn't immediately apparent that Anna was attracted to Margaret. And then when there's the reveal that, oh, hey, I'm seeing this guy, Kurt, Anna gets off the train and has this tearful moment. And it, I think he has this. Uh, Statuette. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah, yeah. So I guess
0: the, the part that's not in this volume is the relationship between uh, Margaret and Anna. Yeah. So everything else is in this volume. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which I actually was, I was a little confused. This is, I think, one of those, actually, I'm glad we could turn to this page, because uh, this is a great, like, Jason Lutz moment, because Anna had made a sculpture to give to Margaret. Oh, I mar- she it. sits down on the it. shore, looks at the sculpture... Yeah. There's a panel that looks like Anna has thrown it into the ocean and you see the statue sinking into the water. But if you pay attention, Anna's holding the
1: statue
2: against their chest. Yeah, he still and, has
1: it. and yeah. like, um, I got momentarily confused as well. So I only I just think, realized that now. <laughs> yeah. And it comes up again in book two where he's like, oh, right. I'm in a new relationship now. And I forgot. Like, I had carved this for you. So here, you can take it, Marth. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was supposed to be a depiction of a split second desire where like okay. he was so upset that he wanted to just throw it into the ocean, well, but he chose not to.
2: When Anna gives the statue to Margaret, yeah. I had to go back to this book, and <laughs> flip through and like confirm like, oh, Oh, I missed that the statue is still in his hand. <laughs> like that totally went by me. Yeah. So when he gives the statue, I was like, but no, that's on un- the that's in the lake now. Like that's in the underwater. How is this happening?
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I really I really like that moment because I think it shows how profoundly he was like invested in Mars and how much mm. he cared mm-hmm. uh, and how strongly he felt. I think it shows better than any words. Uh, like the extent of it, because you know he carved this thing like for for uh-huh. her. And mm. <laughs> he was so distraught, he cast it into the sea. But then sentimentality. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, no. And just...
1: I, I really love their relationship. I thought, uh, it was very complex and very complicated, and mm-hmm. uh, people make questionable choices throughout the relationship. I feel, but mm. I'm glad to see it.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. I. Uh, and again that. Like, that relationship, uh, we'll probably talk about more in the next episode. But, like, I would say at the end of this volume, I was, it was sort of like, oh, I guess Kurt and Martha are together. So then I the, all the twists and turns in book two and yeah. book three were, like, yeah, kind of really pleasantly surprising for me. I was mm. like, oh, wow, this gets really complicated. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Do you want to talk about some more characters? Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the, the Braun family. Oh yeah. Uh, so the end of this volume, Gudrun is killed by a stray bullet during the communist protest that the uh, Nazis have a counter protest at, and the police step in to shut everything down. And the communists don't want it to be shut down, so there's a fight. People get shot, stones get thrown, and Gudrun dies. Yeah. And this has a couple of effects. First of all uh like i at that point i don't think there's any coming back for oscar he's now in the nazi party forever yeah and then their kids are kind of in trouble too because sylvia their daughter doesn't want to have anything to do with her father definitely doesn't want to have anything to do with the nazis she was i would say even more of a communist than her mom was Mm -hmm. um and now she doesn't have a mom and doesn't have anywhere to live which has effects in like next episode uh, and Oscar already has uh, their son Heinz um, Heinz. so he's already looking after their son because they've already split up and Elga who's the youngest is like we don't know what's going to happen to her yet because she was living with their mom mm-hmm. and it's just this it kind of like encapsulates this conflict that's happening among the citizens of the city yeah. in one family yeah,
2: yeah. I, I I think there's no more poetic way of showing the the core problem that Germany was under than having this marriage where the wife is getting into communism and the husband's getting into national socialism. And then the wife gets killed. And they just, it tears the family apart <laughs> yeah. and then the wife gets killed for being a communist. Uh-huh. Like, it's just, there's no better like microcosm of the, pro- the the macro problem that Germany was under, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And even, again, coming back to the humanity, like you you examine her choices and her motives and they all make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Husband's a bit of an asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, things aren't going really well. She decides to leave him and then unfortunately loses her job at the factory. She's staying at a women's shelter for a little while and it's not, you know, a really great place for her children. She doesn't have a lot of privacy. She has still doesn't have a job. Uh, and then, like, the Communist Party gives her a total leg up out of that situation. She gets a job. She gets a new place to live.
0: A nice place to live, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so she has, like, an, a lot of gratitude for the party, right? And mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, like, it's interesting that she's not necessarily very political. I think it's clear that she would maybe vote communist because, uh, like, she has already been reading their newspapers and, and is already saying sympathetic things about them. But anytime they want her to actually participate in activities, she's always like a little more hesitant, only really gets talked into those kind of things.
1: Yeah, she definitely did have to be convinced to attend the march. Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate that she ended up being murdered over it. But Mm -hmm. that's something that I think is what makes people really it's it's emblematic of the type of risk that makes people reluctant to be politically active in any way. Mm -hmm. right you know declaring a side somehow does make you you a target yeah Mm -hmm. yeah or at least makes you at least identifiable in a way that other people most people probably would prefer and anonymity
2: Mm -hmm. yeah well this is uh something that i grappled with when i used to complain about uh, anarchists walking around with their faces covered And then someone kind of walked me through, like, actually being an anarchist has consequences. So especially if you're a a marginalized person, 100% you don't want to be identified. So masks make a lot of sense. And, like, I've totally made a 180 on that position now.
1: In any (laughs) protest in general actually so like with if you want to bring it back to the modern times like if we can look at what's happening in hong kong oh
0: yeah yeah facial
1: recognition technology is now at the point where you can aim a camera at a crowd and positively identify and mark forever people's uh, participation in a in a protest mm. and so uh if you are choosing to attend a protest make sure you protest safely and uh take certain precautions like uh, leave your phone at home and uh, mm-hmm. turn data off and mm-hmm. uh, don't have
0: apps on your phone that are owned by the government you're protesting mm-hmm. yeah
2: mm-hmm. so
1: it's a uh, it's yeah. complicated for sure I think it's even more complicated uh, I don't know if I could say it was even more complicated now it sure seemed real complicated back then yeah yeah <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah
0: people make stuff complicated yeah yeah um,
2: I don't know find me a time period that wasn't complicated <laughs> <laughs> yeah um. But yeah, I um just to get back to like the storytelling and the art. Like even though it's a very tragic moment, I actually felt like the pacing in Gudrun's death was like just one of the most powerful comic sequences I've read in a long time, just like the way that you see her looking kind of confused and you hear the crack of the bullet and then people are running and she's looking down and she has this little pinhole in her shirt and it takes about three to four panels before she slumps down on the sidewalk and then just like dies and like the way the panel borders disappear and it fades away and then there's a sequence where it's her and Oscar sitting naked in a field and it's kind of like I don't know I'm, I'm not sure if this is like a memory or just like a dream but it's kind of like this like it's almost like kind of like she's gone to heaven you know, and then it just goes to black, and uh, even just like these last couple blank pages felt so intentional. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, yeah, there's like a <laughs> couple of black pages, and then like three or four white pages.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know about the digital or the, no, or the hardcover, but like after Gudrun, after her her death, there's two black pages, and then two white pages, and then even like a red page. No, uh, which might that's probably just the end papers, but
1: it's missing in the digital edition, so that is a really nice touch of the physical experience <laughs> yeah. for sure uh,
2: and that's also the end of the first the first book, which is also yeah. the first chapter uh so for those following home, once Gudrun gets killed, that's the end of book one, yeah. or chapter one
0: okay, uh we should wrap this up so we can do another episode, yeah, um, we won't do final thoughts because we're not at the end yet <laughs> so. Shoutouts.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca. And then, uh, just again, to kind of maybe related but like lighter reading, uh, I was going to recommend First Legion of Utopia, which is by Renegade Press in Calgary. And it is a historical recounting of uh, the birth of the NDP in Canada. It's the birth of the NDP in Canada is a lot more peaceful than the birth of communism or national socialism in <laughs> Germany. Um, Although there was the
0: <laughs> Winnipeg strike, a general strike of nineteen nineteen, which was not as bad as what we just read. Yes, but still, yeah. pivotal.
2: Yes. Well, this is, I think, after the Winnipeg strike. Yeah, yeah, because um, there
0: wasn't an NDP yet.
2: Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyways, a little Canadian comic book with a little Canadian history. And So if you want, again, like in a little palate cleanser after Berlin, just chill out a little bit, maybe check it out. First Legion of Utopia by uh, James Davich, uh, Bob uh, Proder, Nick Johnson, and Ryan Ferrier.
0: I'm Jonathan. You can find my work at phobos-comic.com. And on Jam's recommendation, I read Humunculus by Joe Sparrow. Yeah. It was so good. <laughs> uh, there may have been tears. Uh I don't know, maybe it's because um I'm of an age where I remember the Cold War and how it seemed inevitable that uh it would the Cold War would either never end or would end in nuclear apocalypse. So stories about nuclear apocalypses kinda of get to me, but it was also just a really, really good comic. And a really interesting format.
1: Yay. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Uh yeah. So I'm Jam. Uh, I'm still in the comic minds. Uh, the best place to find out what I'm up to is probably patreon.com slash jam, but hopefully that will change in the future. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out, which is if you're reading Berlin and you're looking for advice and kind of looking for a more modern take. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I've been really enjoying How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, which is a exploration of how to resist the attention economy. Hmm. Which is like uh, a lot of, you know, modern social media and it discusses a lot of just the stresses of the modern age and the tendency to want to retreat completely, but examining a lot of alternatives and uh, I believe the term Jenny uses is how to resist in place. So resist without retreat, how to disengage from the attention economy without just like rage quitting Facebook, which may not have any effect. So it's a really interesting modern read. Uh, it's a bit academic, but I've really been enjoying it.
0: So our next episode, we are going to be looking at volumes two and three of Berlin.
2: Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Bank of Republic Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening!